If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible and you're a guest visiting us, we have them under the seat uh, that you're sitting on. They're usually at the end of the row. If you need one, just ask someone at the end of the row. We can get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can have that one, take it home with you, or you can go to Lost and Found and find maybe that's one that's maybe leather-bound, maybe that's got some nice notes in it. It is our gift to you. This last week, we started a series called Life in the Spirit, a series that we have been thinking about and praying about and studying for a very long time. And I made the comment last week that this is a series that, has, um, that brings something to the front that has sort of been hovering in the back of the life of the church really since we began. And I'm not going to start every week with a confession, I don't think at least, unless I keep screwing up. Um, Thank you. But I'm going to start again today. Because it's important, it's important for you to know that your leaders, your pastors and elders, take the word of God seriously. And that we take the leadership of this church seriously. There's a term I introduced last week called a continuationist, which would be a term that's juxtaposed to cessationist. And the term continuationist means that we believe that the word and sign gifts in the New Testament are still operative today. And a cessationist would believe that they have ceased, and largely they would argue that they have ceased at the death, around the time of the death of the last apostle. But the confession again is this, is that I have always been a theoretical continuationist. I've always believed that the gifts of the Spirit continue to this very day. I've never adopted a cessationist viewpoint that certain spiritual gifts ceased At the end of the apostolic age, some would argue that tongues and prophecy end when the perfect comes, a term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, but that's a reference to the second coming of Christ, as any careful examination of the text would note. It's not the close of the biblical canon, but I would argue that we all will be cessationists one day. We will all be cessationists when Jesus comes back. We will be cessationists when Jesus comes back because Paul will also tell us that as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When you see Jesus face to face, you're no longer going to need prophecy. When you see Jesus face to face, you're no longer going to need tongues. You're no longer going to need a manifestation of the Spirit because you will be in the presence of God himself. So they will cease one day, but not now. The perfect that comes is the parousia. It's the appearing, the second appearing of the Son of God. And one day that will happen, and one day we no longer will even have to have faith because we will see God face to face. But even though 
This is the confession part. I've always been a theoretical continuationist. Far too often, I think we've been functional cessationists. In other words, believing in theory that the gifts continue, but looking a lot like in practice, like believing that they've ceased. And this, of course, is the place where repentance is required. To say that one believes something, but to not pursue it is wrong. To say that one believes something, but to not earnestly pursue it and earnestly desire it is wrong. And so I repent. Now, I must add one other comment by way of introduction as we continue into this series, into this new venture, this new season in the life of this church, is that we as elders don't know exactly how it's going to look. I hope that doesn't scare you. It scares me a little bit. But we do know that God is leading us to press into these issues. And we do know that if we are faithful to look at his word and to teach it accurately, that God himself will be our guide. My fellow elder and friend, Chris Taylor, has often said that Movement is oftentimes better than careful planning. That movement is oftentimes, maybe not every time, but it's oftentimes better than careful planning. And of course you've heard the analogy that walking even is a perpetual state of imbalance. When you're walking and you're putting one foot in front of the other, there is a moment that you're just falling forward with the hopes that that other foot is going to catch you. And you can kind of see this when you watch a child learn how to walk. You watch a toddler learn how to walk, and there's this risk that they're taking where they're starting to fall forward, hoping and waiting for that other leg to catch them, and they eventually get it. And when they get it, they're actually walking. And I think we could make the analogy and apply it to us today that movement in this area, pressing into God's word in this area with not exactly knowing how it's going to look at the end is okay. It's okay sometimes to take a risk like this because this is the main reason that churches like us don't pursue it because we're afraid of how it's going to look at the end. We don't know for certain. We're afraid of the willy-nilly. We're afraid, as I said last week, of the guy in the back row that's barking like a dog. I'm not talking about you, John. I'm not talking about you, bro. So let me just read the text, (laughs) and we'll expound it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 14, and just keep in mind, we're going to read this passage several times over the next several weeks. This isn't going to be the sermon that you get on 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 14, okay? You're going to get about one verse's worth today, all right? We're going to take our time looking at God's word, unpacking this in a slow, careful, precise fashion so that we understand what God is revealing to us in his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And this is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you now. And we just acknowledge that we are grateful that we can call you Father. You are the Father of all who are in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and friend and Chief Shepherd of the Church. And we thank you for the love between the Father and the Son in the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that has been poured out into our hearts to make us one people. We pray this morning for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be here and active and present. We pray that every heart would delight and be enamored at the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. For it is the work of the Spirit to bring to light the glory of the gospel. We pray that would be so. We pray great things. We ask you to accomplish them by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of brief overview, I, I, I can't recapitulate everything I said last week. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go and listen to that message. But the overview of last week is simply this. That the Holy Spirit is the prominent and pervading promise of the Old Testament. That the continued testimony of the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, is that there was coming a day when God would pour out his spirit in the new covenant and that his spirit would reside in new covenant believers. It's the preeminent and pervading promise of the Old Testament. It's the promise that God gave to Ezekiel. It's the promise through Jeremiah. It's the promise that Isaiah repeats. It's the promise through Joel chapter 2. It's the promise that God would pour out his spirit in a lavish sort of way upon his people. And as we open the Gospels, we see that the spirit is beginning to pour down on Jesus himself as the forerunner and the first man of the new covenant. He's a man that is filled with the spirit and full of the spirit. And we looked, of course, last week at the day of Pentecost, when the spirit was then poured out upon the apostles... And then the Spirit is poured out upon everyone who believes. It is the pervading 
and prominent promise of the Old Testament. It's the question that the Apostle Paul asks people in Acts 19. Have you received the Holy Spirit? It's the term that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3 and Ephesians 1.13 when he refers to the Spirit as the promised Holy Spirit. It's the promised Holy Spirit that comes upon them. Four verses I want to read to you, again by way of introduction as we continue to press into the beginning of this series. Four verses that I thought about this week that were challenging to me, that I want to know what they mean, and I want to experience for myself, and I want to lead this church to experience what these verses are talking about. Luke twenty four forty nine. <coughs> Excuse me. Behold, this is Jesus. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Power from on high. What's striking about this passage is that just three verses later, this is the description of them. Okay, This was what's challenging to me. Three verses later, it says uh, that he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So before the spirits poured out, there's great joy among them. They're worshipping in the temple. So there's something more there that Jesus must be talking about. Because they're in the worship service with great joy, worshiping God, before they've received the power from on high. It seems too often churches experience what they were experiencing in verses 50 to 53 before receiving the power from on high. I want to receive the power from on high. I want to know what that kind of power looks like in my life, in my family's life, and in this church. Second verse that I mentioned last week, but continually in my mind all week, is to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Paul characterizes in verse 14, 12, he characterizes the Corinthians as being eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Eager for manifestations of the Spirit. But what so often is our attitude towards the spiritual Gifts, at least in my own mind, in my heart, has fallen short of earnestness and eagerness for the manifestations of the Spirit. In fact, the Bible goes further and it asks us how much are we committed to corporate edification? You know what I mean by that? Us together, us together building one another up is what I mean by corporate edification. Because Paul will tell us in 14.12 also that the manifestations of the Spirit are for the building up of the church. Further, Paul will tell us in the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that love is to be the controlling application of the spiritual gifts. So, this is not just an attitude check. It's not just a disposition check to consider our attitude towards eagerly desiring the manifestations of the Spirit. It's a love check. Is there a mutual kind of love? Will we love one another enough to move from an extreme cautious position to an earnestly desiring position? It's a question of love for one another. I think that's one of the points that Paul's making by including 1 Corinthians 13 sandwiched between 12 
and 14. It's not just an attitude check. It's a love check. Third verse. Does he who supply, uh, Galatians 3.5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There's a way that the Spirit is applied to our lives and the means by which is hearing with faith. Akues pistuos. Hearing with faith. What is that? I don't know. But I want to know. I want to know what it means for the Spirit to be applied to my life and your life through the means of hearing with faith. The preaching, probably. That's probably part of it. The Spirit is experienced and the Spirit is poured out while God's Word is being proclaimed among us. And fourth verse, a verse that is very near and dear to us and many of us for a long time, Ephesians three fourteen through 19. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the rich of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And finally, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a massive promise that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, that we would be strengthened with this power through his own spirit in our inner being. That's what we long for. That's what I long for. The promise of the new covenant is that God would put his spirit within us and that his spirit, Jesus tells us, would be poured out from on high with power. This is the promise. This is the promise that everyone will have the spirit. That's the first comment by way of long overview introduction. But the second, also by way of reiteration, it's one of two things that I want to show us this morning from the text. There's two things I want to show us from the text this morning. And here's the first one. That the first and primary pursuit of the manifestations of the Spirit is the pursuit of God himself. To pursue the manifestation of the Spirit, first and foremost, is to pursue God himself. This thought, maybe more than any, at the beginning of this study, in the beginning of this journey, has captured me. And it's in Sam Storm's book, The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts. Okay? And he asks the question whether we should talk about God and his gifts or we should talk about God in his gifts. So should we talk about God and his gifts as two separate things or should we talk about them as one and the same? God and his gifts or God in his gifts. And this is what Storms says. This is important. Spiritual gifts 
are nothing less than God himself in us. Energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills, and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. Spiritual gifts must never be viewed deistically, as if God is out there and he has sent some thing down here to us. Spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, human deeds, human words, human love. They're not separated from each other. To earnestly desire and to earnestly pursue the spiritual gifts is to earnestly desire for God himself to be present in and through and among you. That's what it is. This paragraph is very powerful to me because desiring the gifts, to quote from John Piper, is to desire God. To desire the gifts is to desire God. And the Apostle Paul will keep pushing this discussion forward. There's pastoral implications here. He'll keep pushing it forward that the, towards this corporate edification of building up the church, as we said in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, 12, rather. And this is the crucial point that I think we're going to keep circling back to throughout this series. That to pursue the spiritual gift, to pursue the manifestation of the Spirit is to pursue God himself because too often... The abuses of the gifts of the Spirit, the willy-nillies that we've talked about, the crazy-waysies, they come from a desire for sensationalism. They come from a desire to see something sort of sensational happen. They don't come from a desire for God himself. That's one of the reasons that we see the aberrations. One of the reasons that we are afraid of it or concerned of it or there's some fear about it among us because too often we've seen it. We've seen the, the, the TV evangelists. We've seen the people mailing in their $5 for a small blessing or $100 for a bigger blessing or, or $5,000 for a really big blessing. And that's just baloney. It's just not from God. There's a desire there to just kind of see something sensational happen. There's a desire there to see something that's not the desire for the heart of God, to not see God himself, but something that's just sort of spectacular and sensational that may or may not have to do with God at all. But a true earnest desire, a true earnest and eager pursuit of the things of the Spirit is a true and earnest desire and pursuit of God himself. I believe the Westminster Catechism, part of it, which says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That the greatest thing that your soul was made for was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that the pursuit, therefore, of the manifestation of the Spirit is the pursuit to enjoy more of God. So that your soul, your heart, your mind would be filled with the enjoyment of God, that his presence would invade your heart and your life and your soul to such a degree that it overflows with this joyous experience of God. 
or as Piper has said, that's been so instructive to so many of us, is that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That we bring glory and honor and we ascend to the weightiness of who God is by delighting in all that he is. So that his spirit inside of us, manifesting his spirit, uh, manifesting the, the, the gifts in an outward fashion, ex- bring an expression of joy. Pursuing the glory of God is what you and I were made for. And obedience to 1 Corinthians 14.1 is nothing less than the pursuit of God. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. You were waiting for it. God glorifies himself towards his creatures in two ways. By appearing to their understanding. And two, in communicating himself to their hearts. And in their rejoicing in him, the manifestations which he makes of himself. I'll say that again. God glorifies himself towards his creatures in two ways. By appearing to their understanding. And second, by communicating himself to their hearts. And in their rejoicing in him, the manifestation which he makes of himself. He goes on a little further. He says, God is not glorified. Only in his glory being seen, but in his glory being rejoiced in. Did you hear what Edwards just said? 18th century theologian. He said that the rejoicing in God comes from the manifestations that God himself gives to us. That the manifestations of the Spirit are for the glory and the enjoyment of God. That's why, that's why we pursue earnestly the spiritual gifts that we might enjoy more of God, that he would manifest himself to us, that he would reveal to us, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, that we would experience the power through his spirit as it's being revealed to us who God is and who we are in Jesus Christ. That is first and foremost what we must come back to as we continue to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And as we continue down this series, and as as a local church, as we desire these things, we're not desiring some sensationalism that's somehow separate from God. We're desiring for God to manifest himself to us through his Spirit. As we said, this is one of the reasons that charismatic churches get a bad name. Because they're more interested in the experience than they are interested in God. More interested in the experience than they are interested in God. And that won't be this way among us. We will earnestly pursue the greater and higher gifts so that we might experience God. We will earnestly pursue the greater and higher gifts so that we might experience God, so that we will experience that power from on high that Jesus is talking about. So we might experience, as Paul said, for us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. That's what we long for. We long for a taste of God through his presence. So that's the first thing that I want to impart to us this morning. 
Because the first thing I want to impart to us this morning, that earnestly desiring the higher gifts is an earnest desire for God and his presence. It's a desire for God. The second thing I want to impart to us this morning is this. Let me start with an illustration. There's a, a helpful sociological book that came out a few years ago called Bowling Alone. And what Bowling Alone seeks to capture from a secular sociological perspective is the breakdown of communities, is the breakdown of social fabric between people, that there's no longer uh, the, the social clubs um, that existed maybe 50 years ago. There's no longer the, the degree of bowling leagues that there used to, do, that used to be. That's the, the main example that Putnam gives in this book. But he uses bowling to illustrate a much larger point that we experience in a radically individualistic society. Because we find ourselves living in probably the most radically individual society and culture in the history of the world. We define ourselves and identify ourselves primarily by the freedom from any kind of obligation. If you look at the secular world, true human flourishing is the freedom from any kind of obligation or restriction. It's the freedom to be whoever you want to be, whenever you want to be it, however you want to be it. And any kind of infringement upon that is seen as oppressive. It's seen as something that should be uh, run from and, and, and something you should flee. It's not seen as any kind of freedom. Okay, It's seen as oppressive. It's seen as something that you need to get away from. Anybody or anything that's trying to control you is bad, bad juju, get away from it, okay? But we know, and even the most basic of human institutions, that they bring human flourishing, right? We know, I think even common sense will show us that we see the joy that happens when two people have been married for 50 years, They've found the right restrictions in their lives to bring actual flourishing. They've said, I'm going to commit myself to this person for the rest of my life till death do us part. And as they do that, they restrict themselves. There's a whole slew of options that are closed off to you, okay? And when you close off those options, though, you actually have now given yourself the parameters to find true flourishing, to find yourself in another person by giving yourself for another person, by loving somebody unconditionally, and then loving you back unconditionally, you have found yourself in a relationship that is radically different than anything the world seems to offer us. Putnam will say in his book, He says that bonding social capital constitutes a kind of sociological superglue, whereas bridging or breaking social capital provides a sociological WD-40. Is when we create institutions that keep things together, it's a sociological superglue. You know what he means by sociological? He means it's good for the rest of society. It's like a superglue to the rest of society. 
But when we break off all types of social commitments and social constructs, he says to society, that's like WD-40. It just kind of pushes everything apart. There's nothing to hold it together. There's no social fabric that's holding anything together. We live in a very lonely city. We live in a very lonely city. We live in a city that prides itself on, on being weird, which I guess is fine. But we live in a city that prides itself on community, but at the same time is so, so very, very lonely. Very lonely people. But that's the whole second point that I'm about to make here. And that is this. That the second thing that the manifestation of the Spirit provides for us is unity among God's people. The second thing that the manifestation of the Spirit provides for us is community. The second thing that the manifestation of the Spirit provides for us is the creation of a people. We live in a world that longs to belong, that longs for community, and the pouring out of the Spirit upon a people is what makes us to be a people. This is what the Spirit pouring out is doing. It's creating and binding us together and corporately building us into one another. Building us into, as Paul will say in Ephesians 4, building us up into one new man. Where there used to be division. There used to be division, but now the pouring out of the Spirit is making us into one new man. That's why we taught on community for four or five weeks prior to teaching on the gifts. Because an understanding of how the gifts and the manifestation of the Spirit are to operate must, must be preceded by an understanding of community. Without an understanding of community, without an understanding of the purpose of building us into one another and making us into a people, then the pursuit of gifts will look like the pursuit of gifts looked like at the church in Corinth. That's why Paul had to preach and teach 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 came because the church was full of the manifestations of the Spirit, but everyone was doing it for themselves. And Paul calls them what? Clanging gongs. He says they have nothing if they don't have love. If they don't understand that the outpouring of the Spirit was to build them and bind them together to one another. There's three spots in this text we'll make this point. We're going to teach this text Backwards. 1 Corinthians 12, 14, 13, 12. You'll see three fours there, correct? Four just as the body. 13. Four in one spirit. 14. Four the body does not consist of one member but of many. Those are three purpose clauses that come to us in the text there. Because, because, because. Four, four, four. And it's giving us the reason and the explanation for what he's just told us in verses 4 through 11. And 4 through 11 is the explanation of all the gifts, right? It's talking about the stuff that we read this morning. The varieties of gifts in the same spirit, gifts of service, varieties of activities, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, tongues, prophecy, so on and so forth, interpretation, etc., And he says, because, because, because. 
Those were given to you because just as the body has one, is one, has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. If we don't understand this, then we, at the very beginning, misunderstand the whole purpose of the manifestation of the Spirit. Manifestation of the Spirit is for us to earnestly pursue and desire God and for Him to manifest Himself and for us to enjoy Him in our lives and among one another. And second, that we might be built together into one new man, into one body, He calls us. What does this mean? says that we are in verse 13 for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body Jews or Greeks slaves or free all were made to drink of one spirit this is very Experiential language, okay? Made to drink of something. We were immersed into something. It means that the location of these things is in the Spirit Himself. And this Spirit is what we've been immersed into as a people. Each of you sitting next to each other have been immersed into the Spirit. You were made to drink of that same spirit. That's very experiential language purposely by the apostle. The first aim and goal is that we would all have the same experience of the spirit together. The exercise of gifts that doesn't have that aim misses the mark. The exercise of the gifts that doesn't have the aim of us having the same experience in the Spirit, that we would be immersed in it, that we would drink in it, that we'd be built up into it, the exercise of the gifts that doesn't have that aim misses the mark because the manifestations of the Spirit are for the edification and the building up of the body. The second thing this means is that there's no room... There's no room in the distribution of the gifts for pride or arrogance or haughtiness. We looked at verse 13. We could talk about being baptized in the Spirit. We could talk about drinking of the Spirit so that in the filling of us, it's making us to be full of His holy influences. But there's one thing that we need to remember. is that there is one and the same Spirit behind all the varieties of gifts. One and the same Spirit works all things. And then verse 4 will say, now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. Verse 5 will say, there are varieties of ministries but the same Lord. Verse 6 will say, varieties of of effects but the same God. And 8 and 9 will say, for to one who is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit and to another word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. What's the point I'm trying to make? And what's the point Paul's trying to make? He wants us to clearly get the message. 
We are different in our gifts and ministries and effectiveness. Yes, no doubt about it. But those differences are not owing to many spirits or to bad faith or to poor obedience. They are owed to one and the same spirit. The spirit is the one who decides who has what. It's the spirit who decides who has what. Which means there's no place for pride, for arrogance, for haughtiness, for boasting. It is the spirit who sovereignly, according to his purposes, distributes the gifts as he wills. That's what verse 11 will say. Verse 11 will emphasize that it's the spirit is the one who decides who will have what gift and ministry and effectiveness. One and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. It's the spirit who is in us and around us and over us. It's this spirit who is the sovereign one. And that's the point that we're trying to make this morning, that it is God who does what he wills. It's God who decides who gets what gift. It's God who decides. Look, we had a child training seminar last night, and I was reminded again of something that uh, I've been taught by Chris that he says to his, to his children at night when they're little, when they go to bed, to remind them that God is the one that put them in this family. And so you ask a young child, did you choose who your mom and dad would be? No, daddy. Did you choose what country you'd be born in? No, daddy. Did you choose what time period you'd be born in? No, daddy. So you could have been born in 12th century Tibet. I I, I suppose I could, daddy. So why were you born in this family? You were born in this family according to the sovereign purposes of God. So that you would be born to a Christian family so that you would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God who sovereignly decides. They didn't decide to what family they would be born. I didn't decide to what family I'd be born, nor did you. You didn't pick who your mom and dad would be. You didn't pick when you'd hear the gospel, how you'd hear the gospel, how it would happen. And the same is true with the manifestations of the Spirit. It is God who sovereignly works them and distributes them according to His will. Which means that should absolutely obliterate any kind of pride or arrogance among us. Pride and arrogance is probably the first defeater to Christian community. And if the purpose of the gifts is that we might desire and enjoy God and that we would be built up together, we ought be smashed to the ground realizing that it is God who sovereignly distributes the gifts. And we must have this base level understanding if we're going to move forward in this direction. And third, I'll close with this. We must remember the importance of the gospel. That every single one of us have been justified by grace and grace alone. Justification by grace 
Justification by the gospel, by the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place and on your behalf is the prime motivator that brings healthy community to us. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. It is something that was done to you, not something that you did to yourself. It was something that was done to you, not something that you did to yourself. It was God in his sovereign electing purposes who chose you and saved you and lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you deserve to die and made you to be born again and baptized you into one body. You had nothing to do with that. That was his sovereign and gracious and merciful purposes in your life. We must have this understanding of the good news of the gospel that we are here, we are rooted and grounded in grace. We are justified by the finished work of Jesus. And when we start there, and we continually circle back to it, we need it pounded in our heads every single day. I need it pounded in my head every single day, sometimes minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. We are justified by the finished work of Jesus. We are saved by grace, and he is the one who's made us into one people. And so now we have the freedom to earnestly desire and pursue the spiritual gifts that we might get more of him, more of God, and we might be able to build one another up, that God might actually use us to edify and encourage another Christian. He's going to use you as you pursue him. He's going to give you utterances of the Spirit, manifestations of who he is, so that you actually could encourage another Christian to look their eyes, lift their head, and look to Jesus. What a good and gracious God we serve. Let us pursue it wholeheartedly as the Apostle calls us. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your love towards us in Jesus. We ask, God, that we would be a people that are marked by these two things. The pursuit of God and the mutual evocation of one another. We're grateful, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.